Welcome to Rockstar Today, the podcast that helps musicians quit their day jobs. Show notes can be found on rockstartoday.com forward slash podcast. You will also find a link to sign up to the Rockstar Today Backstage Pass Facebook group. And now your host, Randall. Welcome to Rockstar Today, the podcast that helps musicians quit their day jobs. I'm very excited today. And I'm kind of going against my own goal, which is to have people quit their day jobs. I don't want this guy to quit his day job because he's the guy that gives me my haircuts. He's my barber, but he's much, much more than that. That's just his pastime, I would say. What he's really into is music. And I want to introduce Element. Now, Element is an artist himself. Uh, He's a producer. He's a Juno judge and the founder of Free 99 Records. And he's even produced for such big names as Gorillaz, and many others. This was back in 2015. And since then, he's been working basically around the world, taking care of crafting the perfect sound for bands, along with uh, crafting his own sounds and for his own uh, musical endeavors. So I wanted to welcome you. Thank you for having me. I'm super stoked to talk to you. I got to say, you look good, man. Like the hair's still holding up. Hey, it was only done yesterday. When someone leaves the barbershop, what it's going to look like, but I approve. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. Well, that kind of brings me to an interesting thing. I have I have a buddy of mine who's been on, on the show before. His name is Kevin Jenny. Uh, he's a painter. And at one point, he took a couple weeks off of work to really focus on painting. Having all that time was actually a detriment. And he did not get a lot done in that period of time. It seemed that when he had a bit of work, like I say, it's kind of funny because my show is all about making you stop your day job. But sometimes having... Uh, even a part-time day job or something to keep you busy makes you appreciate more the free time you have to be creative. And then you know you have a limited amount of time, which makes you more creative. Is that something that you found with yourself? I actually, you nailed it. I find that when I have way too much free time that I do way too much or I'm in my head a lot and it it makes me doubt myself sometimes. It takes a whole lot more. And like, you got to, boost yourself up on almost a daily basis to keep yourself kind of like aligned with getting things done. Yeah. When uh, like, for example, COVID had us locked down because I'm in the industry that really couldn't go back to work. Couldn't really work from home. I'm a barber in those early months. I was doing tons of music. However, I wasn't finishing a whole lot of records and I I find it because kind of like the day stretched on and I, I was able-bodied to like go and cook and then come back to a record that I had to self-motivate myself a lot. And I found it a lot more challenging rather than having like a pretty good schedule right now to still create a lot. And I'm kind of like always working within certain days. So my sessions are always on my available days. So I always have to plan ahead. Uh, may it be because of other artists and uh, just schedules in general that I find out when I'm there, I align myself to like really complete projects and really like put my working hat on and force myself to like align myself with other people's goals and just find a way, an actionable plan to like finish it, to launch it. Yeah. So yeah, totally. Absolutely. One of the many hats you wear apart from your toque is because we are in Canada after all. It's actually rare you don't see me without a toque. Yeah. So uh, one of your many hats is a producer. I found that uh, fascinating. It's kind of uh, what we've been talking a lot uh, on the chair 
is about your different projects. I found the one with the, the gorillas to be uh, very fascinating. And I want to kind of talk a little bit about that, how that uh, opportunity came along and what you learned from it. Learned a lot. I'm uh, pretty convinced that majority of those records might never see the light of day just because with a camp like that, there's a lot of work that gets done within like kind of like a construct of a ton of people, but it's, there's not a ton of people in a the studio. There's all like layers. So while I was there and I'll, I'll tell the backstory of how I got there. Let me just kind of dig this thought out. I was kind of reintroduced into the stage in the context of when the gorillas were planning on rediscovering their sound. So they had these tapes that they did. And they started to see each other and, you know, just do like family oriented things like a crew, like go on safaris and whatnot in like the Serengeti. And then they come back and we would record again. And they went to Hong Kong, I believe it was in some tiny, tiny crammed studio. They jammed for like maybe, I don't know, I think it was seven days straight, just jammed and recorded it and they took it back. So the same thing and that's some type of same ethos I was introduced to. And that's kind of like how I got my feet wet with them. Now, how I actually got to the point of meeting them was quite interesting. I made it out to Europe, I'd say 2012, 2013. I was jumping around working with different independents. I have a cousin in Paris. He's kind of a behind the scenes guy, has worked with some big names. So I was doing some pop stuff there. Then I went to kind of water my barbering garden in Italy and that's where I felt like I could like really earn a lot of stars and stripes and that's also where I spent a lot of my time into like R&D like personal R&D and like really regaining structure as a songwriter and not just like an independent freeform lyrical artist it was more of like how do I actually put my frame of thinking that I was able-bodied to do within my rap catalog into like other people's catalogs I started aligning myself. Eventually, I ended up in the UK. Uh, one of my close friends and one of Canada's best artists, period, uh, Junior T, was out there promoting an album that he just released. We connected and my journey started. I bought myself a one-way ticket and I said, you know, I'm not leaving this place until something actually magical happens. Burn the boats. That's it. You know, that's that's where that's where you birth the best ideas. When you just put yourself into those type of storylines that don't make no sense to your current brain, that's like, that's eh, kind of risky. You're really being an artist right now. Like, do you have another safe plan? And luckily, because I'm a barber, it's one of those careers that you can really just carry with you. I uh, set up shop and I stayed for about a year. I'd say six months in, seven months in, I was doing like radio shows. I had a PR agent out there that I was kind of like rooming with for a while. And then I moved out of Kent, which is just outside, just south of London. Finally made it to the big city. From there, I hit the ground running. I, I, I found myself to be like connected with unique independent artists that were just about to make their name on a scene. Obviously, Junior was doing the same. So we brushed shoulders a ton and it helped. Some of those characters, I believe it was actually my friend Darshi who was running a part of a radio show and she got me booked in an independent college radio show. They invited me to an after party in like West London. I pulled up and I was not aiming to meet who I met, but at the time I met Gordon Hudson, who was the guy behind a lot of 
early successes in the hip hop scene in the UK. From there, didn't think anything of it. He uh, texted me as I was going back to South London, which is quite a ways away. London is a huge city. And yeah. uh, it, it was kind of whimsical. I think I was actually by uh, Winchester with two friends of mine. And I just got called by a bunch of people just kind of like happy-go-lucky partying in the background, like after party. And found out it was Remy, the producer from the Gorillas, and Gordon Hudson on the phone. And uh, yeah, it was very interesting because I was kind of like struck by it. Like, what? Like the Gorillas? Like, are you kidding me? Like the Gorillas? And that turned into like them saying, hey, by the way, when we come back from these festivals, we'd like to meet you. Eventually, they actually called me, said, can you come this day? Pulled up. I think we made like two or three song ideas. And I knew right away that I was in like good company because I was comfortable. It felt like a brotherhood. I realized that these people think very similarly how I was thinking. Like they were opening random books. They were showing me YouTube videos about like quantum theory and scientists from Poland and stuff and all these things. And I was like, oh, all right, cool. That's how we started redefining the sound. And that that's why I find me being there wasn't just like the catalog that was pressed afterwards. It was really like the unique story and like the behind the scenes stuff. Cause I, I kept coming back for about six months, seven months. I even flew back once or twice to finish some things off. It was the best teaching lesson I could have how it's ordained over there and that kind of structured is very, very different than here. There's no big offices. Everything is like in quaint little neighborhoods. And this was in West London, where if you pull up, it looks like an auto body shop on the outside. <laughs> you enter and you would never consider like seeing what you see. The first level, there's like De La Soul finishing their, their latest album. Above us is like Dornick, who's like a really talented, almost like Michael-esque voice, Michael Jackson. He just has that kind of sultry voice, really doing his thing. Right next to me is S.G. Lewis. I mean, worked with everybody. Dua Lipa's new record, you name it. Pharrell, you name it. And above us, legends from Africa, Osibisa, and Remy Kabaka, and myself just working. You know, it was just the energy, like right across the street, on this tiny little street, smaller than where Crisp is in Point St. Charles, literally you'll find like the biggest servicing agency for radio in like all of Europe, the biggest management group, the, this management group was managing their gorillas. Uh, so they came and checked in on us. You're talking about Adele, you two, like huge names that they were like part of just there, you know, like right across the street, how they just communicate, walk back and forth, how they prepare tours. I started seeing it all. What was interesting though, was it was paired with like this conventional monster you can never really think that you can create and attribute yourself to a business of size like the gorillas because yeah. it just feels out of proportion. It feels unattainable to the normal man. And I felt like I seen underneath the engine while at the same time in a parallel, those same offices had all these different creatives and creative hustlers just making business deals, wagering things. There was an energy and a belief to the records. Finally, I stepped into a place where People weren't hesitant about the records that they were making. They were, they were fully convinced and they knew how to get there, right? They knew how the underbelly worked. And that's where I started paying attention. There's so much to unpack. There's too much to unpack. You know? Let's go back. I want to kind of review some of the stuff you, you talked about because we might wonder how does one get from maybe being in Montreal 
getting outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, there's a saying that says, uh, great things happen just outside of your comfort zone. So you totally beyond your comfort zone, you one way ticket to London, you surround yourself with the right people, not only surrounding yourself with the right people, but you put yourself out there, you, you go to events, you go to parties. I feel that I, I know you enough, I think, don't know each other that much, but I, I think I know you enough that you could, you, you would be yourself, you're not trying to be somebody else. Totally. And I think exactly. that's what made connections for you. And you have Absolutely. to connect, right. connect with the right people, not because you're trying overly to connect with them, but just because it was natural. And that brought you yeah. to the point where you're now in the same building that, you know, Adele and, and others uh, were being, uh, Dola Sol, that would, that would have been cool too to see them. Legends, absolute legends. You got all that knowledge. You learned how the whole industry, you, you know, you went under the hood basically and you kind right. of uncovered exactly. all the secrets. I want to kind of bring this back to the production and what you learned in terms of pro producing. So what is involved really in being a producer? Like, what do you actually do with the music? You sit there with the bands. Uh, uh, so the number one thing that a lot of them do and not to cut you off whatsoever is uh, they don't over quantify music and art. They let that aspect be as holistic as possible that they'll travel to destinations, they'll rent castles, they'll rent gritty studios, they'll go to Jimi Hendrix's old studio, whatever you, they feel in their artistic nostalgic memory will invoke something out of their art. And Find the muse. I, feel like, I feel like that is the number one thing that artists need to remember, that it's art, right? Like all the business of it is business, no doubt. It's tough, it's hard, it's, it's gritty. But art is art. And I think that when you're starting something, you can do it at home, you can do it from anywhere. Uh, once you've created your art, you can start by jamming ideas, voice notes, bring a couple of creatives that make you feel safe, fun, uh, invoke art out of you and out of each other could be a very personal thing like Tame Impala. I'm, I'm pretty sure I don't know the guy that well, but it seems from his interviews that he's quite intimate in his process of making music. But you'll see that he'll go to like rent a place in Malibu right by the water and then bring his equipment with him in a Jeep. You know, he's probably that guy's that somber, self-reflecting type of artist. I think that there's no one way to do it. First and foremost, it doesn't have to sound a very specific way and you can mold it later. So once you've done that, you probably take it back to a studio. If you're an engineer, you would work on it yourself. If you don't know how to play the cello, or if you don't know what, I would, I would listen to the record, digest it a bunch of times, make sense of the record first. Jams could be very long, could be an hour long, and you might just choose the best three minutes out of it. Then you might splice aspects of it and be like, oh, that's a bridge, write that down. Okay, that's a hook, write that down put that together. And then from there, once you have that, what you can do is kind of like start molding it and be like, okay, yeah, I need something more theatrical. I need, you know, somebody to come in and lay down a, a gospel back into this. And I think that is more attainable these days than it was back in the day, you know, like with session artists being online, you can go to like a lot of different websites to find them. Even Fiverr, man, I've sat at I've sent things to like Italy off Fiverr for like 15 <laughs> bucks. I got to do that plays like concerto, like flute to lay down. And I wanted to make a record that's uh, kind of like Aretha Franklin's daydreaming. 
So I sent it to people, sent it to a live drummer, sent it. I've had, I have bass guitarists that have laid down ideas from uh, Barbados. I'm trying to think off the top of my head on the same song. I had uh, Jesse Ray as his drummer, Gino, laid the drums, uh, the flutist from Italy. And I got it all back within uh, anywhere between three violin here, three to three days to three weeks. I put that record in my shelf if it's a complicated record and I wait until I get it back then I take it back to the studio and I'm an engineer I, I work with other engineers as well because I these days I like to work efficiently and I enjoy coming up with the primary things either myself or with like my team and my team are like guitarists uh, songwriters you name it and people I trust and love so I feel like in my personal case the records that I'm able-bodied to make with others will sound different than what I do alone. And it just depends on the record you, you want to make. Once you've done that, you mix it, get it prepared, and send it to mastering. I don't personally suggest you do mastering yourself. A lot of people are DIY mastering. You can tell the difference. And I feel like this year, I learned that the most. I've mixed and mastered records. I've done things on Lander. They've still worked. It's just that's what I personally am. So if I'm going to give you my answer, I work with people that have accredited a certain sound success. Like if I want my record to sound and feel like Kanye's record, I'm going to work with Kanye's engineer. Yeah. Like, and, and these days, it's not like, oh, you're crazy. You can't hit up Kanye's engineer. That's what the gorillas thing showed me. Yes, I can. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, you can too you know, believe in yourself. If you don't believe in your record, don't send it out. That's it. I think like keep going back and refining it and you don't need to stick to the first base lick. Maybe you do feel it, feel it. Start with art, finish with art. I like that. Start with art, finish with art. Again, I want to break this down. There's so much information in there. Uh, I like your point about the art of it. You just talked about start with art. So putting an artist, or if you're an artist yourself, putting yourself in an environment where the muse will talk to you, where you'll get that inspiration. You'll soak in some of uh, the, those forgotten guitar licks that are kind of soaked into the walls and you'll kind of get that nostalgia back and that'll help you create. And then you bring all these things, these long jams to a producer who will chop it down and find all the, the juicy bits, the, the pieces that will make you shine. I guess a producer will help you put that together into some sort of coherent form that will be much greater than the sum of its parts. And then exactly. kind of polish it while, like you said, keeping the artistic integrity of the artist and try to help them to uh, make sense of all these sounds to something that you know sounds like amazing as a whole. Exactly. And then, of course, you take it to the next level, you mix it, engineer it, and then the mastering, as you recommend, should be done by a professional if you're going to spend money, that's probably where you're, you're going to want to spend the most money is just that finished product, right? Exactly. And I mean, like set a budget for your release. Of course, if you want it to be heard, you got to be realistic. Uh, you can only tap into 30% of your own followers without a paid model on social media. And sadly, I didn't invent social media, so I have nothing that I can say about it. If I want to use their base model, when I release my song, I have to play by their rules and I can complain all I want. And I can go ahead and be part of the revolution, but I got to be realistic at the same time. You know, I, I got to tap into an audience. I got to spend money and mastering these days, for example, it's going to cost you maybe 
after you've done like, let's say your main run and maybe a secondary for your instrumental or your radio, I don't know, $350 Canadian. It's not bad. It's not that bad. No. To get like the same guy that masters the weekends project, Jay-Z's project. You also have his accredited success. That's a, that's a price of a bad guitar at at a pawn shop. Exactly. Exactly. You nailed it. That can hardly buy you a piece of software these days or even a pl- two plugins, you know? Yeah, I've I, I learned as an entrepreneur that there's some things that uh, y- you might be good at and there's some things that you're okay at. There's something that you just don't like doing. And if you can focus on the first two of what, or actually the first one is even better, what you're really ultimately the best at and delegate all the rest, it's a game changer. It, it worked in my business. It works for everything else. Totally, uh, totally. Two, two last things I want to deal with. Uh, two questions on producing before we move on to the next part of your life, which is uh, the Juno Awards, which was, again, very interesting. What can you do if, as a band, you can't afford a producer? It reminds me of a saying that says you can't read the label when you're inside the jar. There is a lot of benefit from having an outsider's perspective. So if you can't afford a producer, what can a band do? What are some good tips? And lastly, what should a band look for if they do choose to work with a producer? Right. So to answer part A of that question, I believe that if you're not in a position to actually mix your record and record it yourself, you can start looking with programs like Recording Arts of Canada or Trebis. It's an engineering school. So you'll have engineers there waiting for projects. And a lot of them will probably be able to kind of book you in. I know McGill has a program as well. And Berkeley has a program. There's many more programs around the world too. What I would suggest is getting in touch with some of these people and maybe even messaging the schools directly. If you don't have any relationships within kind of the circle of people, you can get into a studio and have a really good pair of ears and a young budding engineer run it for you and use it as a part of his project that he's going to hand in to get marked. So it's a win-win, right? He wants to do well with the project. He has to apply what he's learned and you're getting something out of it. So it's a fair trade-off. Other ways you can do it is you can go on different websites. I'm I'm trying to think, I think it's soundbetter.com. And that's the same one that you can get like session artists, Okay. Uh, you need somebody to add a little pizzazz or a different instrument, but they do have engineers there too that range in price from 50, 75, $100 a record to way more, you know, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're better or worse. You choose your price, right? You feel like you've uh, trekked through the mud enough to like charge 500 to $1,500 a song. That's your price. And I had to determine who's a good engineer. Trust your ears. I know engineers that are not even in love with like the whole plug-in game. They'll mix just basically just based off volume, you know, the classic way, you know, just making sure that everything sits in a record right and then send it to a good mastering guy. Also, I think that in knowing what you want to go for before you get there, because no one's going to work for free. No one's going to have the time to mix a record and then you shelve it. Most good engineers are going to work based on payment. And so you also kind of like have to really think about what you want out of your sound and listen to your favorite records that you want to compare it to, maybe not creatively, but like sonically in your headphones, on a, on a mono bow speaker, um, in your car, 
and write note as to what you hear, particularly about the instruments, where they sit. Do they poke out more? Are they 3D modeled? Does the bass emphasize like the whole backing of the song? Is it mono? Is it right in the middle? You'll hear the difference. Yeah. And if you can't hear it, ask somebody in the band that's really good at that to hear it for you and to make those notes and start understanding the records you want to sound like. So when you tell your engineer, you can be like, this is the reference record. And what I particularly like about it is the panning on the guitars. It reminded me of like that 60s feel when they were mixing things more left, far left, far right. You'd be like, oh, okay, cool. Like the whole Motown thing, stacks, records. Okay, cool. I got you. Mm -hmm. I think that most, most guys, the less you tell them, you don't need to sound science, scientist to them. You just need to kind of tell them what you like. They're professionals. They're going to be able to kind of dig that out and create those feelings. They know it, right? You just need to kind of pay attention to the details. So obviously getting the right producer, getting that right sound is so important. I mean, you have a clear image as a, as an artist of what it sounds like in your head. So it's finding the right person that can take that vision and put it on wax. Totally. 100%. I want to move to uh, the Junos. Obviously, competitions like these are somewhat controversial these days. Some of it is because of the labeling. You know, people are being labeled as R&B or pop or vice versa, and they don't like it. Some people are getting snubbed. It's a bit political, but let's kind of forget all that. I just want to talk about the experience of being a judge on the Junos what it takes to be nominated. What are the things that the Junos are looking for, for example, or any awards are looking for when they're looking for nominations? Yeah, that's interesting you said that because I have a bunch of different things I could talk about as to what made me understand how the Junos work and what they stand for. Now, if we're not going to get into the snubs particularly, what I can do is like kind of to defend its structure and the way it's built is it was built with great intentions. It was built with a solid foundation and that through the years, it's maintained its integrity. I personally feel like the Junos are a voice and a beacon for artists in Canada to really shine. And we should be glad we have them. Uh, in personal, honestly, I'm not a paid spokesperson for anybody. I do, it's just the personal way I feel. Mm -hmm whoever it is that was mentioning that they're getting placed into these categories, I would question the relationships that they've built with their management or labels for that, because there's nothing that the Junos are going to do about it. They're not involved in that aspect of things. They, they open the submissions up and you tell the Junos what you're going for. It's not like you'll just send in, your EPK and your, your, your album and, or your single, you have an open call to pitch to them basically for anything you want to pitch to. So you decide if you're going into contemporary R&B or hip hop. So if a hip hop artist goes into hip hop because somebody in his camp or him directly or her directly applied for it, you can't blame the Junos. Yeah. You know what I mean? The Junos has nothing to do with that. And that's my answer on that, period. That's just how it works. What artists and creatives can do uh, and what the Junos look for, I'd say integrity, artistic integrity. It's not all about stats because even as a judge, you don't solely have to judge somebody based on performance of a record. I personally can tell you that there is some attribution to overall performance 
obviously when you're like considering something you're you're running the whole metrics of it yeah. just try, better understand where that song traveled what type of impact it could have had and how many people were involved how how big of a splash did this song make but on top of that is if an independent artist just released a gem of a record and my ears because i was chosen to be a part of a cast of people that are entrusted with this i personally believe that i have to listen to the records and make sure that i hear that type of soundness in a record like i i need to hear that the record has not only a label backing and like just like forced listenership mm-hmm. but that there was earned listenership like it weighs more those people will buy your merch bundles those are the people that are going to go on your tours every time you're in their city there's a longevity so even if you're like looking at a portfolio of like let's say a company uh you're assessing the next 5 10 years 20 years of the company to assess um the worth of the company it's not currently how it's operating does it have the potential for an investor the same way for song is do i feel like this song is going to be forgotten tomorrow it's biased opinion right but i feel like because of the way people speak about it i started to question like what does it take to make a classic does it have to be a classic for me to vote it in so i feel like i use both i use metrics personally and i use that artistic integrity that the record makes me feel and if i can feel that this thing is going to be around forever i'm sorry this is they gave me the opportunity to judge a record based on what i feel is correct mm. uh, and and me as a judge i can't speak for everybody i personally look at the whole contribution the cultural contribution did you shift something in culture were you detrimental to culture did people listen to this and respond in violent ways because me as a person i want to see a world that doesn't have violence in it i'm mm-hmm. sick and tired after 2020 you got to be as my friend uh, matt says matt coats you got to be double positive you can't unconvince me of that again go try to talk to another person about it i personally feel that artists have to hold a sort of responsibility to culture once they have influence and i also try to predict that an unknown artist might be that guy 5 years from now you know and and i and i try to listen with like unbiased ears and again that doesn't mean that i won't vote a party record in or out no i like party records too i i'm totally down if something doesn't have words i'll vote it in if it's mm-hmm. if it's the right feeling it's it's again it's a it's it's, well, it's, it's all instinct, of these right? things have to be considered for me i think you're taking something from your exactly you're producing days where you're looking for an instinct of what what works what doesn't work uh you're applying it here as a journalist you know i go to uh, concerts sometimes here uh, advanced records and there's sometimes you hear something from an unknown band it just rings in your ear differently perfect example the dmas they played a pre oceaga show at zivan orange and i went there it was raining it was a kind of a yucky night there must have been 15 people in that room i just heard something and it's like these guys have something like this right but so those are some of the best shows to go to honestly next thing you know i'm in london i go out of the tube and there's a big poster in the tube station of the dmas they obviously you know made and you know now they're playing festivals they just played like a, during covid 
a big football match, big soccer match in front of right. everybody. But you could hear that sound, even if it was raw back then. And right. see that evolution, it kind of makes you feel good. It's like, oh, I, I recognize something that was true. And I feel that must right. be the same for you when you, you hear something that's, you know, it's got some substance. It might not be polished, might not be totally. 100%. It doesn't have to be. It could be recorded on a voice note. I, I personally don't care. I respect records that are well-produced, of course. But when something makes me feel something, like, for example, that video of the homie with, like, the hoodie, bald dude, listening to, what was it, Fleetwood Mac and skateboarding yeah. with, like, cranberry in his, in his yeah. hand. And, and now he's a massive, massive thing because people <laughs> saw the same type of vibe in it. You know what I yeah. mean? And it was like a mood. There's a, it was a mood, right? Like it was a nostalgia to it. Like this, like yeah, that brand new band, Fleetwood of, Mac, right? Like it was just like all these things that you just like, oh yeah, this is totally a mood. I think the same thing with music. If it's just a mood, it's a vibe. I, 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 I don't know. Some people tap into like the cloth of the universe. Like, I don't know the lining of the God's jacket. I don't know how to like, it's just weird, but you know that they're going to be something. They, 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 they know how to tickle the senses with underlying mood to their music or art that is clearly there. It's almost like a, a cloud in a room, right? Like a haze of sorts. That's what good music does. I personally, I've been lucky enough to see some artists myself like that too before and just been like, yep, yep, I'm convinced. I'm good. You know, I, 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 to the point where I don't, I'll hear your opinion, but I'm good. I can't. Yeah. This is this is this is it. I think one one of the big things that uh, that I've learned by interviewing bands, musicians, is that oftentimes I find they will use words to describe a feeling that we might not be able to describe ourselves, and especially when it's a dark feeling and that you're trying to bring light to it, uh, and then then you can f kind of feel that sense of belonging and you make a connection with your audience because you're sharing something true, like like you said, being staying true to yourself is very important. And when you do that, you, that's when you make a connection. If you're trying to fake something or, or create something just to win a Juno, for example, just to try to please a million people, I don't think it has that same effect. I think it might have a lot of... You read it. People yeah. sense it. It's, you can tell. You can tell. Oh, man. This was actually... We were, um, I was in a session once, and uh, the guy told me two things. One guy told me, oh, wow, I can... I can sense you were smiling in this record. And we're talking about another artist. I'm not going to mention any names. Mm -hmm. The other guy said wow. about another record that was played, like, man, I can like hear the Coke in his voice, mm -hmm. like the cocaine in his voice. And it just like made everybody kind of like feel weird, you know, for a second. And <laughs> I was like, wow, that's crazy. I've never heard that before. And then when you listen to certain records, that's not like that whole like Nirvana or like, you can tap into Cobain's pain. You know what I mean? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm not saying go do Coke to sound like that at all. I'm saying you can hear these things in a record. So the same way if you're, for example, making something to just entertain a certain audience and fit yourself to attributes of a certain category, you, you, it'll sound like it. And I don't know how to describe it, but you, you and I both know it's going to sound like it. Yeah, even somebody was, uh, I just heard on an interview, somebody said, like, this is, uh, the artist was being asked, like, you've had a great childhood, right? He goes, yeah, I had, my parents love me and all that. He says, yeah, we can tell it in your songs. You need to take it up a notch because 
we can't feel your pain. Find it somewhere else. Because it has to be real, it has to be raw, it has to be emotional. So you feel like there has to be some form of pain to music? I don't believe that. I have seen a thread in, in a lot of the interviews I've done. If you go to Montreal Rocks and you you look through a lot of the interviews I've had, there's this this thread of of artists dealing with some sort of trauma. And the way they deal with it is through song and it's like a release for them. It allows them to find some sort of peace. And I find that that's the ones that seem to do well. Do you need trauma to be a good songwriter? I don't think so, but I think you need to dig deep and and go beyond just the external stimuli. You have to reach for something. It could be a passion. Maybe it's a, it's a happy passion, but you need to go and dig. And I think it's easier for people who dealt with trauma because they have to do that digging to survive. Oh, def- definitely. Yeah, for sure. And I think in society, I don't know, I read something earlier. It was kind of like, a, don't fully quote me, I might fumble the ball on this one, but it was kind of like a, if you're very happy around sad people, they won't tell you necessarily, but that whole social angst that we have on planet Earth is real because it's much more comfortable in society to feel frustrated rather than be overtly happy if no one knows why you're happy. You just like, oh, I got to check my happiness. Oh, I got to check. Am I smiling too much? You know, like, why did I just laugh out loud? Is someone going to think I'm talking to myself in my head? Like there's all these doubts, like crippling doubts to just being genuinely happy. And and then that comes with like, some people might look at that and they feel frustrated because they are not happy and they see you being happy. And now that's a problem for them. And they might never tell you, but they might think horrible thoughts about you because how could you possibly, and I've had a guy, on Twitter once years ago, messaged me and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you know about suicide? You, you think like, you know, anything about pain? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it kind of called me out and I gave him my phone number and uh, I followed him. I DM'd him and I was like, I didn't want to cover this subject yeah. in public. So if you really wanted to discuss things, I'm here for you. Like first and foremost to me, I, I, I don't hear the insult. I heard the alarm. You know what I mean? I heard that this person was hurt and I'm all for it. Just so you know, through the looking glass, things can seem very different because at the same time that month, I thought it was almost a joke from the universe. This happened because one of my close friends unfortunately killed himself and it was in that same month and it was very tough to digest and it made me really have to look within. I'm a man of God just to let you know. So I always shelter myself and look to the gospel to kind of like help me through these things. It was really tough because I never really heard back from him after that, but it was just kind of this like attack of sorts. And I see a lot of it happening. We don't know enough about each other's lives to to do that. You know what I mean? And what we're going through. And I think that primarily we tap into this like rage because we feel the social angst that media feeds us constantly that, uh, is circulated bad news versus good news no i to answer the question in full in full kind of connection is i think you just focus on making music that has an emotion attributed to it and it could be gospel based it could be your soul shining and being super happy uh it could be a mix of both somber and happy uh i think there's like a 
uh, deconstructed. It's like on uh, Netflix. It's like a series where the guy goes and interviews people that had a hit song or whatever and breaks down the song from the tragically hit Losing My Religion, how they never made that song to be associated with religion. It's just... It, it was, it stood for what it stood for because the people created a world for that song to exist in. And it became what was like a joke record for them, became one of their most prized possessions. Yeah, when like R.E.M. put that out, that was, that was yeah, great. Yeah, R.E.M., that's, that's what it was. Sorry, I say Tragically Hip, my bad. That's another one that was, I mean, that, that, um, that last Tragically Hip show. That's kind of rough, a, that's tough, that's sad. That was a Canadian event, I mean... Uh, not a lot of people. If you're if you're if you're listening to this outside of Canada, you might not know of the Tragically Hip, but it's kind of a natural treasure for us. This band that didn't never seem to make it anywhere else but Canada, and yet a lot of us were listening live somewhere, and it was right. a connection. And I, I, I had tears. Uh, I remember thinking about my my buddies and my friends. Yeah, uh, who I wanted to feel, man. You know, like I I remember. Big shiny tunes. I remember being young and skateboarding and uh, listening to that. I like, I had those moments where I was listening to REM and Tragically Hip and all that, where it was just like to see that last concert. It was yeah, it was chilling. Yeah. So again, emotion is probably the key to uh, being relevant in music, whether it's positive or negative. And that was a it was a celebration. It was a happy moment, and they were like. There were tears of sadness, but it was mixed with tears of joy because it's yeah, it's not like it was a celebration of this catalog of music that was so dear to us. Anyway, it was a so, it was a moment. So yeah, definitely. you know, like you make a. Do we even remember if their whole catalog was more sad versus not? No, it, it it's after time passes with this art, you yourself will feel emotions out of it, and it will probably be a mixed bag of them. And I think good art does that; it stores itself into like this emotional memory inside our body and, and, it's different and, and for our everybody. hearts and our mind yeah because like different. you said losing my religion end up being taking on a different meaning than what was originally done and that happens a lot with artists they'll they'll put yeah. out some lyrics uh, maybe that are very specific to a story or a narrative in their life but as a listener that narrative changes completely it, it could be a negative thought and all of a sudden for the the narrative as a listener becomes a positive thought or yeah. vice versa. Or one thing is about death and it ends up being about life to the listener. Like it could be completely different. That's the beauty of music. I think is how we can uh, soak it in through our ears and we can almost remix it, manipulate yeah. it in our minds to be whatever, give it whatever yeah. meaning that we need. You said, to get it. Out of it. you said it. That's so crazy. You actually use that reference that the other video is like Alicia Keys and Sanfa. And they were talking about the craziness and parallel of that record where Alicia Keys just gave birth. I think it was to her second child and Sanford just lost his mother. They sang basically the same verse, but because of their boy, one sounded like grieving and one sounded like rejoice, you know, like. Yeah, I remember that episode. It It was awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It's crazy. Let's dip our feet into the label game. Yeah, no doubt. So. Uh, you have a label, Free 99 so, Records. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about uh, what's involved in starting a label. What is the goal of your label and why did you create it? Jeez, straight to the nitty gritty. That's how we I, do it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love it. This is a really cool interview. Got to say, I created the label kind of like 
quote unquote officially or whatever back in 2015 when I first moved here. I've been strategizing and ideating it for a couple of years longer than that. And it came as a response to me working overseas in Paris, where at that time I was being like, you know, liaisoned around from studio to studio, working with people. Some records came out, some didn't. I, you know, I was asked to participate as a, because I, I rap and I'm pretty versatile as, a, as an MC. And I was asked to not only write for other artists and pop, but placed on records that I wasn't really proud of, mm-hmm. let's say, because there was just like one of those like well-manufactured, you know, pop engines. It didn't fit the rest of my catalog. And yeah. everyone around me at that time was like, okay, yeah, well, you know, you have all the attributes. You just need to make music that's going to pop on this radio stuff first. And in Europe also, it was more like dance-based. And, you know, as a writer, I'll do it. I'm absolutely in love with making all kinds of music. But as an artist, like vocalist, I struggle with placing myself and co-signing everything. I, it doesn't sound like me. I walked away from that. I finally decided to walk away from it. I got a few re- hit records out of it that I was attributed to production or as a writer and some features as well. But I never really talked about it. So they silently were blowing up in Europe. It just like didn't feel right, you know, and I came back. I kind of had to settle down and find a, you know, like another job. And, and, you know, I lost some time there. And I feel like in the process of that, I learned what I wanted from myself and from labels. I started imagining myself as kind of like a free form consultant when it comes to like working for skill, working for hire. And that's where I needed to form a business to actually hold my music. At the time, I, I didn't have a distribution deal anymore. Before I, that, I was with like Universal at the time and dabbled around here and there. I eventually settled down with like just kind of creating my roots here in Montreal it's mainly based around kind of like being free of masters. So I, I, I made a rule that I'm going to work more as an agency rather than a label because I was predicting that this is where the industry is going to go. And that's what like my experience working with like digital brands. I've worked with Nike, Nike Canada, Yogan Fruz, uh, BMW, uh, Levi's, a bunch of different names as a creative strategist on projects where I felt like I understood how to create a budget, but not spend a budget on hot air. And I realized that I was able-bodied as a creative because of my network. Yeah, seriously. You can't, you got to stay composed in the ring. You're going eight rounds. uh, Can't do it all in the first round. You you know, you see TKOs and it just doesn't work that way. And I felt like with artists, I work on different levels dependent on what they required. And I wasn't gung-ho to sign a whole bunch of talent. I started very humbly as more of a collective. We uh, had a studio in Montreal. And from there, I felt like we started to kind of create a sound for Montreal that we got known for. Uh, A lot of very talented electronic producers, if, if I may say myself, joined the ranks of the label and championed the sound by doing a ton of festivals and a ton of parties. It was almost, it's impossible to like miss it because of just sheer amounts of parties that we've done over the past three, four years. 
and connecting with a whole ton of different creatives. And again, because different we were genres, right? a servicing it's agency, I got myself lucky enough to dabble into like organizing behind the scenes and, and collaborating with like the Museum of Fine Arts and the Picasso exhibit with the Moogler exhibit. Uh, with radio stations, with media companies, with Videotron for doing like music, video games, you name it. To this day, one thing that I, I guess I could like honestly answer holds the glue together is it's like the Marvel universe. I realized that everyone knows that I've actually championed it myself where I'm not opposed to working with other brands or other labels. I don't need to own your catalog. I, I understand that I'm not profiting as much off you, but let's be real, until we're hitting big numbers, it doesn't make a difference in my life, nor theirs. And I think that I'd rather build someone up and help build them up and they build me up. And at one point in time, we can bridge the gap because we have more soldiers. You know, there's more people in the streets with adept qualities to have a success story and with that i feel like there might be people that don't repay you know from the heart that don't want to work with me again or with the free 99 and it's okay with me i've kind of like settled my ego down enough and hushed it put it in a corner just so i can hear my heart and my heart always told me no no matter what do what you do you still have yourself as an artist as a creative you have tons of people around you. you everything is growing. Um, I'm super proud of everybody that and what they've accomplished. Everyone is working in the industry. Now we're starting to kind of minimize our necessity to work a second job. If not, not work a second job. I'm proud of that. I, I, I feel like I, I, that's exactly what I wanted. Do we still sign contracts? It depends on who we're working with. If we got some sort of deal to deliver for a commercial or something we sign it for that we wager the management deal we go through the management they get a cut operations for the business gets a cut artist gets a cut and uh again i've never brought something to the table for you and now you're winning great i'm proud of it i'm happy for you you know what i mean i i, I feel like that's where we differ from other labels where we are a label right now. I've signed with uh, Cobalt Music to distribute and manage everything in my digital catalog. I couldn't be happier because they're excellent at what they do. Real people behind it. Once in a while, I have a backup with DistroKid or TubeCore just, just in case. But uh, I have a strict contract. And within that contract, I have the ability to sign talent and not get a question. So if I decide to put somebody new through Cobalt or like, let's say AWOL. AWOL, you have to be approved and it's, they're not always, they're kind of picky with who they approve. But AWOL is the servicing side of Cobalt. Basically, I have that taken care of. I have uh, consultants and business partners I work with all the way out in the West that are taking care of a lot of like business strategy and overall campaign strategy. I work on campaign strategy as a digital strategist for most people. Now I'm getting more into like actually training people's Spotify pages algorithmically by setting specific ads and specific information into like a, the, the digital multiverse for that artist to not only get one time success, but get repeat success. And I'm starting to kind of like increase that without getting too much into my ad spends. So that is about conversions. And I've had 
plenty of talks with really cool creatives and label owners about that. And that's the good thing about owning a label is I feel like I've touched base with a lot of the people behind the scenes. That's given me confidence to kind of move around as an artist as well. I feel like I help others cultivate that same type of business culture around their music. So the simplest word that I can represent all of this and it's free. It, the whole shtick of the label is kind of like a flip, kind of being a little comedic, but showing you kind of the flaws in this like over consumerist society that we kind of created. And again, as an artist, I feel like I have the ability to portray it through unique, different ways rather than me just speaking as business side of it, you know? I, I think and, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation about being authentic. You're bringing a business idea that's authentic. It reminds me of an event I was at. Gary Vaynerchuk was talking about uh, if you want to build <laughs> the, the biggest tower in your city, you can do it two ways. You can put in the hard work and build the biggest tower, or you can burn down all of the towers so that yours is the biggest. Uh, I, I feel like for so many years, the record industry, the record business, if you want to call it that, has this burn down attitude. It's a, yeah, it's very about, arsonist. It's about place. them. Yeah. They, they hold all the reins. They hold all the music uh, rights. They hold all the commissions and very little gets trickled down to the artist. But it seems like you're doing the reverse. You've got more of an abundance mindset. I've been just insanely excited about talking about abundance mindset because it, it completely shifted my life from being cheap. <laughs> I found that, you know, when you have an abundance mindset, you don't try to hold everything in. Like, like back in the day, like pre-Napster or even right after Napster, even more so, uh, the record labels were just trying to hold on to everything and things were going out for free. And yet yeah. a band like Radiohead puts out an album back in that time uh, and say, just pay what you want. Exactly. And it was very successful. And, totally. And, totally. And, it's a and whole different like mindset. Nine Inch Nails, the model of like Trent Reznor and like Nine yeah. Inch Nails. I think like uh, back in the day, that was like, wait, what are these guys doing? You know? They flipped but, it I all mean, around. I think that's going to be this going forward. The model to follow is to don't try to hold on to everything. Uh, like you said, you're in business, but you're not trying to, to suck your, your artist dry. You're trying yeah. to... And you know, trying to raise I them mean, up. I work with some labels here and there. Don't get me wrong, like peace and love to the people that are doing great work out there. I think that they've built beasts of engines like that are just you know, like supercharged. I don't necessarily think that labels are like the greatest evil on earth or not. I think that you need to know how to work with them. Again, wager some things, don't wager what you're not willing to lose. I, and that's very simple. You can write down just on a text form very bluntly what you're not willing to compromise and lose in your life and everything else is interchangeable you know like Gary Vanderchuk again that whole abundance mind state to me is almost like not important if you don't have first and foremost anything to attribute to it and I think that attribution is accumulated it's not necessarily a one-time big bang mm -hmm. And that's it. You know, like there one Tuesday, three years ago, I had the big bang theory happen for me. And now I'm just like profiting off of it. It's, it's the abundance theory is it's cumulative. And I think if you're always burning your bridges, well, you're going to have to work and get more salespeople to actually 
get you new business. The industry is small. And I've learned that, that you have to kind of be careful with how you work and who you work with. And I've always been like, man, with great deal of growth comes a great deal of responsibility. And I don't look at myself as the torchbearer. I look at myself as, as a flicker of light that invokes other light, a spark. Let's say a spark in an engine. I'd rather be the spark in an engine than the light because mm-hmm. the light itself can burn out, but like the spark can create other sparks. It's just the way I feel. It's just the way I've made sense of it personally, I guess. And it's, it's cool because it doesn't burn as many bridges. And like, again, Gary Vanderchuk, I think that you mentioned something about instead of just growing your tower really, really high, grow laterally. You know what I mean? So that means don't think you have too much of an ego for some interviews that are not MTV. You know what I mean? Or like not just like the big conglomeracy. You, you know, you, you'll burn yourself out trying to get to a point where Vice is talking about your pitchfork as the greatest knees bees of music, which is great and all. It's just not necessary. You know what I mean? And I think that being creative, being real, being genuine will always be something that will continuously Rise create more for you and others. And I learned that from barbering too. Honestly, if I was me in the chair, we wouldn't be speaking. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I believe in that stuff. You know, I don't have to be like overpressingly, like you said, try hard with my music and like the way I am, but I can't just be the opposite either. I think as, as a creative, that's what it takes. It takes genuineness. Uh, so if you're called out, the truth doesn't have to be exposed. It's in best hopes that I don't fumble the ball over somebody else's life. As the gospel says, the truth truth will set you free. Yeah, the truth will set you free. Ah, yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's a great way to end end this talk. We learned a lot. We learned about uh, what it means to be a producer. Your experience was great because you... You got outside of your comfort zone. You uh, burn the bridges, uh, burn the boats. I mean, actually, that's the whole the whole purpose of you is not to burn the the bridges, but you burn the boats by getting a one way ticket to London, and you made something of yourself. You made those connections by putting yourselves out there, going uh, outside of your comfort zone, and you just became you stayed true to yourself. And even when you ventured into an area like pop that was not really yourself, even that success did not satisfy you because. It wasn't driving with your insides and and you took a step back and you went into the your own label and you're able to do things your way and i think that makes much more of an impact on the people around you and it's a great story that's why you're chosen probably to be a juno judge because you have some sort of ethics that goes beyond just trying to be popular you know like a, the mindset of abundance like we we ended with the, the more you give the more that comes back to you so i look forward to seeing what other opportunities uh, come your way and uh, we'll likewise I'm, uh, again i'm honored to speak with you and when i spoke to you a few times it excited me because you're excellent at what you do your overview and uh the type of conversation i was able to have with you speaks for itself and i'm extremely grateful to have the opportunity to do so well thanks and as you know, I, I have nothing to do with the music industry. I'm not a, an artist whatsoever. I'm, I'm just a journalist. I've just been observing from the... Per- I don't know, man. You do. Like, to me, you are. Yeah, you're but, in the culture. But, you're in it. If anybody ever questions that, tell them I sent you. Like, tell, <laughs> tell them to speak to me. Like, But, but I, I like being an outsider looking in 
because it gives me the, a different perspective. My goal is I want to understand. I want to help. Uh, it all comes from a, a place of help. I want to be the spark. Uh, I don't want to be the fire. I, I don't want to be the light. Uh, but if I can spark these conversations and, and try to understand it, to me, it's fun. I'm having a lot of fun and uh, I enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to seeing you back in the chair and seeing Absolutely. what the Likewise. next year brings for uh, Element. Likewise, I wish you a strong and uh, safe and prosperous finish to t- 2020. <laughs> it's a weird old year. But honestly, I feel like I got to get myself a pair of those shades just so things can be a little bit vibier. You know, like this year has been good, but it's been challenging. I guess I, w- I just want to shout out Rockstar today. I want to shout out Canada for being a leader amongst leaders around the world and setting a different type of precedent. I want to shout out my Free 99 family, my newfound family of uh, producers that I've really invoked a new sound with, Resort 46, my dad, who's really brought me to another level as a creative, my mom for her absolute beautiful spirit my sister for being one of the smartest and kindest people I've met and and God, like for just like providing the whole experience for us. Yeah. There's a lot to cherish and a lot to be grateful for. I look forward to talking to you again and uh, hopefully even collaborating on some things along the way. Who knows if uh, someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to reach you? We do have a website. It's uh, free 99 records.com. All the uh, social media is on the left-hand side. You can also hit me up directly on Instagram, el.wav. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks, man. Take care. If you enjoy the show, share it with other musicians. Help us spread the word. Theme song written and performed by Wolves at Midnight. Thanks for listening to the Rockstar Today podcast. Now go out there and rock your business like you rock the stage.